Hello, and welcome back to Fishnets and Philosophy. This is your host, Mix Bell Morrigan. And I am interrupting my deep dive into the Purge franchise for a three bonus episode splurge to lead up to Pride Weekend. Three episodes that are going to be focusing on queerness and horror. The first episode I'm releasing today is going to be myself speaking with the wonderful guest that was Blaine Waterloo, who is the host of the Ladies and Ligaments podcast. I had contemplated delaying releasing this because the day I'm recording this now, June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court of America decided to overrule Roe v. Wade and strip back constitutional protections for abortion, for all women and people with uterus and I didn't really feel like super prideful or wanting to celebrate queerness and horror with that news but after sitting with it and chatting with Blaine I decided you know what no I feel it'll be a good distraction a soothing balm for people to just forget about the real life horrors for a moment and talk about queerness in horror itself. So I hope you sit back and enjoy the first of my three bonus episodes talking about queerness and horror. Hello and welcome back to Fishnets and Philosophy. This is your host, Mixed Bell Morrigan, and this is going to be the first of my bonus episodes specifically for Pride Month and the build-up to Pride. And today I am joined by the wonderful Plane to discuss queerness and horror. Such a big topic. So before we jump into the topic, anything that you just want to say about yourself, some introductions, maybe your pronouns, if you're comfortable sharing, and just your connection to horror in general. Hello, Belle. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, my name is Blaine. Pronouns are she, her. I am super queer, um, mostly bi and pan leaning, but, you know, I'll take whatever whatever comes my way. Um, I guess that's kind of the definition. But uh, I am the host of Ladies and Ligaments. It's a horror podcast dedicated to women, queers, NBs, uh, all walks of life, unless you are a cishet man. Just don't. Um, but we talk about all the things that are kind of avoided in horror. Most recently, I put out an episode about fat phobia in horror and how writers are combating that by putting together this awesome anthology um, called Diet Riot, a fatter punk anthology. Definitely check it out. Um, but other than that, like just finding fun topics that don't necessarily get their due around people that don't get their due in horror. And that's a big passion of mine is just kind of looking through the nooks and crannies and yeah there are a lot of exciting topics that get the you know run through the ringer constantly but there are people who are constantly missing from those stories and those uh, I guess new stereotypes that we really need to bring out and wear out um, so it's an exciting time to be <laughs> queer um, <laughs> and it's an exciting time to create a podcast about that and I just had Mix Bell Morrigan on it for an episode that'll premiere in September and I'm just really truly happy to be here so rant over <laughs> thank you 
And I am delighted to have you on. And again, a big thank you to you for having me onto your podcast. And I'm excited for that to be released into the world come September. And I think this will be almost like a, a good kind of companion piece to our out- upcoming episode for your show, which was very much kind of focusing on homophobic and queerphobic violence in horror. That was our very um, engaging conversation for your podcast. And I feel like this is going to be kind of like the broader spectrum of just queerness and horror. So it'll be a nice companion piece. So if you listen to this, when September comes around, go listen to Ladies and Ligaments for myself and Blaine's conversation that we had. So exactly. I was I have so many different topics because like queerness and horror is a very broad topic. So I have lots of different points that I want to touch on, but I want to know before we kind of jump into any of those, is there anything that kind of really stood out to you that you've been itching to talk about when it comes to queerness and horror? Uh, So I think something, well, actually, so First Kill just came out on Netflix. Um, It is the sapphic vampire tv show for teens i guess it's more geared toward teens but of course my 31 year old ass is watching the shit out of that so um it was really cool to see that queerness is at the forefront because the two leading characters are queer and they fall in love and it's a you know fun romeo and juliet story um but that is not the plot line you know, they're queer, it's fun, it's that representation that is making the crowd go wild. It's not, their queerness is not being threatened, their sexuality isn't, um, you know, being made fun of or or uh, the butt of any jokes at any point. It is strictly just like, hey, we know the ladies love vampires, so <laughs> lady vampires. <laughs> and they, that, I think that was a win for Netflix. Although I know Lucy from over at the um, Ghoul Friends podcast is putting out a piece uh, soon on um, breaking that down. And one of the bigger issues that they mentioned in tweeting about it is that, um, you know, First Kill didn't have all of the promotion that um, one of the uh, MLM uh, Heartstopper had. Heartstopper, yeah. yeah. That had a huge, you know, a lot of media promotion and everything like that. But First Kill, I didn't really know it was coming out until the week beforehand, you know? So um, there's still a lot that could have been better. Um, and I'm sure as yeah. time goes on, we'll realize that more. But it's these small, very small, tiny wins that are really making waves. And I'm happy for it. I'm just grateful to see that love, literal love on screen. 100%. And also First Kill is about vampires. So it's in the horror genre. So we're getting like positive representation in the horror genre, which is particularly what we're talking about. I haven't watched the show yet. It's on my list. I very much am like when I binge watch shows i have to like finish one show i'm binging and then move on to the next so i'm currently finishing my rewatch of umbrella academy which is also great for queer representation with the character of klaus oh that's my dream <laughs> and robert sheehan <laughs> he is irish so there's just more reasons to love him um but yes there's not a single person on that show who isn't attractive honestly oh 100 <laughs> you can tell that they did like, a great job jared way has 
the ha- his hands in creating <laughs> it as well for the TV. It's just perfect. It's perfect. I can't wait for the third season. Anywho, that's a digression. <laughs> um, so one of the things when it comes to queerness and horror, I think the first thing to kind of jump in, because we just kind of mentioned it there with First Kill, is I, I see a lot of, particularly within the, in quotation marks, terminally online camp, but there tends to be an ongoing debate that seems to just come back and forth every few weeks, every few months, about what counts as representation, like what type of representation we're looking for. There are some people that literally say we can't have any flawed characters there can't be any queer characters that have flaws that are messy everything has to be perfect and tied with a bow so it can be easily digested by the cishet masses and then there are people that say no we need messy characters because that means they're human so i want to know where do you fall under that type of camp about what type of representation we should be looking for and what should we in quotation marks i guess accept (laughs) (laughs) so um i think there is something to be said about accepting you know the representation we get and what we can find out there because for so long that's all we had um is just accepting what was given to us and burrowing throwing for you know small bits of representation whether it was imaginary or not so to finally come to this point where we have enough representation that we're saying, well, what, what is actually representation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of, you know, like when bisexual people are kind of told, well, you're not actually like queer, you know, because you still do one and not the other. Um So I personally will take any and all representation. I want, I very much want those flawed characters. I truly feel that if we're going, you know, if we're shooting for the moon in terms of representation, we want across the spectrum, assholes to angels. Like I want absolutely everyone in there. And personally, you know, I love unlikable characters so much. Mm. Um, I love those people with their flaws. I love the narcissists, you know, and, and being able to see yourself in those unlikable characters and kind of feel a little bit of that just niggling guilt, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's so much fun and it's such a great jab to take that introspection further and to ask yourself, why did I flinch when I saw myself in that, you know, quote unquote, bad character, Um, And I think that contributes to maybe why people don't necessarily like unlikable characters um, or, or think that they're necessary or think that they do a good job in terms of representation. Um, I, I can see where on both ends, like if we go way too positive in representation and make it all sunshine and rainbows, you're not actually representing real queers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you end up alienating your audience. But if you create unlikable characters for the sake of making them unlikable and you don't want people to resonate with them, then you're also demonizing the queer audience and, and the queer experience. So I want, I want the full range. I just want people to be responsible with it. 
100%. And I think that really kind of sums it up. Like when you think about, you know, the media that queer audiences have had to consume for time in memoriam, you see non-queer representations, so cishet characters that do get that spectrum. So straight white people get that spectrum of asshole characters and completely flawless angels like they have that spectrum and that's what we want we want the same that's what like i think is counts as representation because i do agree that i think sanitizing everything to something that's just easily digestible is counterproductive because not only just from like the type of representation that we want to see and trying to make queer media you know watchable and enjoyable by from all audiences but from a wider spectrum just societally there is this kind of certain fraction or segment of like the lgbt community that like believes being accepted or tolerated by mainstream society is the goal rather than actually completely (laughs) destroying the current systems in place and creating a queer liberal liberation you know of everyone being equal like that's the that is the real goal rather than just assimilation into what exists currently and just i kind of think when you're talking about like messy characters and great representations of that i'm wondering have you seen the film what keeps you alive what keeps you alive? I I feel like I just saw it. It's on Shudder, yes? Yes, it's been recently added to Shudder. It's a film from 2017, 2018, if I'm not mistaken, directed by Colin Minahan. And yeah, it's just a film that I thoroughly enjoy. It takes place in Canada as well. And essentially it has two, like, it's a sapphic story. It's got two lesbian main characters. And spoilers for those who haven't seen What Keeps You Alive. One of the characters turns out to essentially be a killer and tries to kill the partner. And that's what the film, like, what I love is that they just happen to be lesbians. But the queerness isn't what is monstrous it's just a fucked up person who happens to be a lesbian and i love how this film gives us that of like yeah that's just an asshole character who happens to be a lesbian and i think it's a does a really good job of subverting the tired trope of the monstrous queer which is something that queer people have had to deal with for again time immemorial so on that topic i want to know what your thoughts are on that kind of trope of the monstrous queer are there any kind of examples that stand out to you that you still think are still count as maybe strong good films even if they portray queer people in a negative light yeah i mean the first one that jumps out um is jennifer's body And while the characters aren't explicitly um, made out to be queer, I mean, they Mm. have that one beautiful scene um, and just this very intense friendship. Mm. And well, and even Jennifer at the end says she goes both ways as a euphemism. um, And I'm taking her word for it. I don't care. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But in that, um, 
you know, Jennifer is made out to be this narcissist and a baddie. She's a fucking badass. And, you know, she's, she's eating boys. She is getting her revenge. And what's not most pointed out is the humanity of Jennifer, Mm. um, where you kind of have to empathize to a certain point with her to fully understand. And that's where, what really um, reached out to me as a teen seeing that for the first time, barely a teen Mm. um, at, for the first time seeing that I, you know, immediately recognized the assault had a big, you know, influence on her, the objectification she was constantly up against. So to me there, it was such a beautiful insight to what makes a villain a villain. And Mm. her queerness was only hinted at but like looking back like from the get you're like oh yeah Mm -hmm. yes like (laughs) how did I not know um (laughs) it it's really spoke to me and gave me that insight to see other you know quote-unquote monstrous queers within that Mm -hmm. same light to try and find those nuggets of humanity or just a human in there um so like this is also kind of silly but ursula from uh the little mermaid to me that is a monstrous queer i mean Mm. she is incredible she's a witch she you know it's all about her sexuality and she owns it and that's demonized throughout the whole thing um Mm. she you know wants to obtain this woman or this girl rather and her body and it's um just so interesting to me to take those tropes and kind of not demand or not not look at them or judge them but to go in deeper and say well or just say but but maybe mm. maybe there is something in there um but i just i i love to an extent, I, I love that trope of the monstrous queer because I want to take that movie and just sift through it and find those little gems of, oh no, they're just traumatized. <laughs> yeah, and I love uh, what you kind of said there about like, you know, seeing the humanity in that character, you know, see looking beyond just the portrayal of villainy, kind of seeing the person. And I think that kind of actually brilliantly like leans into kind of the next point I was kind of wanting to talk about, which is linked with the monstrous queer, but it's kind of, you know, queer coded villains, like in the sense that, you know, we have the Hayes Code of America to thank for the fact that you couldn't actually talk about or discuss homosexuality or any form of queerness on screen because it was essentially against the Hayes Code, against the law. But I love how creators, particularly queer creators, still manage to imbue characters with the characteristics of queer people. And I think when you look at it through the lens of that, it really kind of makes it more nuanced rather than it just being these were, you know, the villains were queer coded because queerness was seen as wrong. That was part of it. But I think it was also, it was these queer creators of the time saying we're here. 
you know, letting the audience know that we're here. We've always been here. We just can't declare ourselves. Like, you know, that's like, you know, James Wales, like who made Frankenstein and other films at the time, a queer director. And I just think it's, and it also explains why queer audiences always side with the villain because we see ourselves in those characters. And (laughs) this is like more of a, funny transaction but i want to know is that do you have a a memory of like the first kind of i guess queer coded character where the thought popped into your head and you know of do i want to be them or do i want to be with them (laughs) oh shit so um yeah (laughs) i think um ginger from ginger snaps was definitely someone (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ginger from Ginger Snaps and Wednesday Adams. Um, mm. I was very much, well, in terms of Ginger, I just thought she was the baddest of asses. Um, and, you know, she gets to be a werewolf and it's this big secret and I would love to help her and also make out with her, but let's not talk about the making out part. That's not okay. <laughs> um, and And so just the 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 internal struggle with loving that movie before I came out um and then just the sweet sweet release of being able to unashamedly enjoy the movie and enjoy Ginger and uh just all of those complexities that that movie brings to the table that I could finally like just take a deeper look at um once I was out it was (laughs) perfect (laughs) not to mention that the the movie itself is so queer like what a beautifully I guess I don't know if anything coded is beautiful um but you know what a what a beautifully written and up for interpretation that movie I mean I just love ginger snaps we can we can go into that further at another time but yeah that was one um but another I think before I even really understood the concept of queer coded villains or characters Mm. I always looked at Renfield in the 1931 Dracula Mm. and it was interesting because before I interpreted Dracula as queer I was like oh Renfield's queer for sure um just exudes gayness <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know it's it's Renfield is obsessed with you know Count Dracula lives to serve was summoned was seduced um mm. and is surreptitiously you know thrown to the wolves um afterward it is heartbreaking but also just I lived for it. And, and before I could really put words to it, I was like, I think they wanted him to be gay. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so much fun to, to feel that light bulb go off. <laughs> I love that. And yeah, I think it's particularly like uh, as queer audiences, that's always like one of the questions that kind of like, it starts to make you question like, you know, huh your your own like kind of identity whether that's your gender identity or your sexual identity but it's like when you kind of have that moment of like I I don't know what this means and I just love how it's something that all like queer you know 
audiences, but particularly the kind of queer horror fans, it's something that you can kind of almost unite around because like you just like you know that it's like a particularly queer thing, as in like, you know, someone who's cishet and straight doesn't really have that type of dilemma. Like, you know, they don't have that pop up for them ever. And I just love how it's a very uniquely queer experience to not know if you want to be the character or if you want to be with the character. And sometimes it can be both. A lot of the time it is both. And I just love how that is a uniquely queer experience. It really is. Oh, I have a question for you, actually. So at what point in your movie watching experience, and I think this is really something more specific to horror at what point in your horror movie watching experience did it kind of hit you that oh god there were gay people making horror movies like way back before you had that education um which movie what time in your life what what was the course of action there Mm, it's it's kind of like a hard one to answer for me because even though I've known I'm bisexual since I was 13, 14, I never felt I could embrace that. I never felt I could celebrate it. And then like just from being like, you know, early teens when I was going to school, like, you know, things have changed so much in Ireland since I was in school. Like back when I was in school, like there wasn't like queerness. There wasn't, you know, anyone that you could point to as being oh that was you know that's some there just wasn't that type of community that existed amongst the age group and never felt I could really celebrate it and then once I kind of went into my early 20s I got into a monogamous relationship and that ex basically wouldn't allow me to claim my bisexuality wouldn't so it was something that I never really was ever like I never felt queer until kind of the last two years so I really feel that that's kind of like that kind of has changed my horror movie watching experience because even though I've been watching horror pretty much all my life I never had that ability to kind of see myself because I couldn't claim myself so it's only been really in the two years that's kind of really changed how I engage with horror media and it just makes it such more of an enriching experience watching the films because (laughs) it's like now I can't like switch off my queer lens I watch everything through a queer lens and like, I love that, but also it means that you're almost more likely to kind of be disappointed when you don't see any form of yourself on screen. And you're just like, oh, you had so much potential. Like, you know, you've got beautiful people on screen. Make some of them queer, please. Come on, just, you know, just do it. And yeah, it's an in- thanks. A good, really good question. It's a, one I'll have to kind of sit on a bit more to try and analyze and see if there was something I noticed. Like, you know, kind of think, reflecting, kind of thinking back, like I do remember watching the Lost Boys for the first time and I think I would have been I probably would have been actually early teens when I saw it for the first time I think I do remember that film having like you know standing out particularly to me but not really being able to understand why like but I think that one is probably if I could pinpoint as if I had have been able to have the internal courage the 
permission almost to step into the label of I'm bisexual, maybe then I would the film would have had more of a impact on me. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Thank you for that. I'm going to definitely be sitting on it for a bit more. But you did mention when you were talking about gender snaps, and this leads again into another topic that I wanted to talk about, which is, yeah, you're just bouncing all the ideas off perfectly. And um, But because you talk about gender snaps, which is a film about a werewolf and werewolves, I wanted to kind of th- hear your thoughts on horror as allegory, because, you know, typically the werewolf as a creature, as a character is usually used as an allegory for homosexuality and then almost like on the other side of that coin you have vampires and vampirism which particularly in the 80s was usually an allegory for HIV and AIDS. I just want to know what you think about horror as allegory and leaning off from that subtext versus text like which do you think is the better medium for a film and is there times when one is maybe more desirable than another that's a big question i know <laughs> that is a big question oh boy with the hard hitters um <laughs> so the first question was my adhd brain i'm so sorry can you repeat yeah i just want to um just horror as allegory your experience yes. with that okay so um, I think in terms of horror, I, I didn't have a whole lot of experience of seeing allegory in horror movies, um, mostly because I grew up with, with the big B movies. You know, I had mm. um, Fright Night, uh, the well, Shining wasn't a B movie, but, you know, um, those quote unquote, cheaper films that were supposed to be taken at face value, or at least they were peddled mm. as needing to be taken at face value. Um, so I didn't really have that in my practice, in my, in my uh, horror movie watching experience um, until I got older and discovered more, <laughs> quote unquote, elevated horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> the best topic. <laughs> yes, that's a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> um, but I, I even remember, you know, looking back um, at the Salem's Lot miniseries from '79, mm. I believe, and that to me kind of um, jumped out because there were you had. Um, Straker and Barlow who moved into town together and they started their antique business and everybody was like oh they're queer they're definitely queer and I was like oh yay maybe they are um but but then you know you also had Ben Mears and um Mark Petrie the young boy and they end up running off together to um live in Mexico and you know they they're the last surviving members and there was always sort of that allegory I don't and I don't know if, if this would really count but that those people needed to be separate 
that, mm. you know, when Barlow and Straker came into town, they lived in the haunted dilapidated house on the hill. And when Ben and Mark had to run away, they ran away all the way to Mexico and had to be on their own. So there are those. And I, and, you know, if we want to get into subtext, there's mm. that subtext of gay go away, you know, of, um, you know, this is not what proper society allows. Mm-hmm. Um, it will either bring about the, the the end of society or, you know, it's meant for someplace far away from here. Um, so I, I believe that something like that is really, you know, what we have to be aware of as creators, not just queer creators, but creators in general. What is that mm. telling people? What, what are the children who are picking up Stephen King in fifth grade? What are they getting from that when they see those, uh, that imagery? Um, so I do think that when it comes to subtext, there's also responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't always plan for what your audience is going to interpret from your words or from what you put on screen, but you can, you know, I mean, like every most marketing campaigns go through a group of people to give the yay or nay, hopefully you're doing your due diligence. Everybody has their flubs, but um, hopefully you're doing your due diligence to make sure you have queer people on staff who are, you know, reading mm-hmm. into these things and who can give that feedback. Um, it always comes back to employ queer people. Just put yep. them on your payroll, please. Um, I I'm a big fan of subtext, but I think that may require more responsibility than actual blatant text um, mm. and, and talking upfront about queer experience and you know having queer characters who are open about their experience and their struggles um I think there's room for both I I have love for both a deep intense you know lifelong love for for every piece of art and Mm -hmm. um craft that goes into making these pieces but I will always come back to there's a big responsibility when you're putting something out in the world. And I, I think that just comes with it. 100%. I think that's a really kind of like, you know, poignant example is it's like a tricky thing because as you said, creators aren't, you know, can't really plan for how people will interpret and receive something that's out into the world. But then at the same time, you know, creators should you know there should be intention behind what they're doing there should be intention and care you know that they're not just you know having bigotry on display just because they can like you know it should be done with you know if if your film or show or book or whatever requires that type of imagery and negativity go about it with caution and you know make you know be aware that that can you know cause unintentional harm you know so i think it's something that you know creators should be aware of like regardless whether they're queer or not but i think particularly non-queer creators if they're you know having any form of queer storylines it's you know they have to be more careful you know that's why you should get like sensitivity readers like you know queer testing audiences you know make sure before you put it out in the world but um yeah, there's just 
so like, I love what you kind of said there about how you enjoy both and I would as well and I do love just as like a you know watcher of horror I am enjoying seeing like you know the more films that are more in your face and are more you know we're not pulling punches this is what we're about purely because of the fact that it's pissing off People who are just going, oh, horror is the worst it's ever been. You know, it used to be clever and it used to be saying it without saying it. Now it's just saying it to me. And I'm just like, yeah, now we can't pretend they're not saying it. <laughs> exactly. Also, the fact that you're pissed off about it is showing that it's working. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just like, I, I love that people are getting pissed off by certain movies that exist. It just makes me happy. <laughs> More. <laughs> exactly. More people getting pissed off by being told that they can't say what they want to say. Like, you know yeah <laughs> exactly and there was one topic that I kind of came, popped into my head because I've been seeing a lot of kind of conversations about it just in the Twitter verse over the last few days and I'm just wondering where kind of like horror sits into it so it's not really a question more of like I guess a tangent but the whole concept of like how homophobia and misogyny are so intricately linked you know in the sense that I think a lot of society doesn't realize how linked they are that homophobia is a form of misogyny because of the fact that misogyny is essentially the hatred of femininity and toxic patriarchal society portrays gay men as being weak because of their feminine qualities which is linked to misogyny. And I just, and then again, those two being linked fuels biphobia and transphobia. It all comes from the same crux of what's fueling it. And I just want to know, like, um, do you think that, have there, like, have you experienced any horror films that have been able to kind of navigate those nuances? Or if not, do you I don't do you think it's a genre that would be best fit for kind of commenting on those nuances? Mm. Okay, once again, ADHD brain, can you just start at the beginning and then I'll remember again? Yeah, yeah, no worries. Then. I, I have a <laughs> I have a problem with like just having long-winded questions. <laughs> Apologies. And <wonderful. laughs> um, no, I was just wondering if you have experienced any horror films that do a good job of, I guess, commenting both on homophobia and misogyny? Like, do you have you had any experience? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yay. So, um, one of my favorite movies ever, um, All Cheerleaders Die, yes. does a beautiful job of displaying both of these and how they really are intertwined and they're one in the same. Um, so All Cheerleaders Die starts with this one documentarian who fakes her way onto the cheerleading squad and ends up getting snuggly <laughs> with one of the uh, cheerleaders. I guess it's the captain. Um, but there's also this witch who is the ex of the documentarian. And there's this whole big love triangle, I guess. Um, and the captain of the football team is supposedly dating the captain of the cheerleading team, a cheerleading squad, but the 
captain of the cheerleading squad is making out with the documentarian and this pisses off the captain of the football team so the football captain hauls off and punches the cheerleader uh captain and boom you have misogyny and homophobia slapped into one asshole of a person um and this was just such a beautiful example of um homophobic or you know queerphobic violence Mm. and it wasn't really it it was so fluid in how it was portrayed that it wasn't even really a plot point necessarily Mm. It, it was a means to move everything along and that was such a masterful I guess example of how you can use that as not um I guess an unwarranted you know depiction of violence but rather Mm -hmm. this is a real life problem and this is how you know it leads to a b and c um I just I love that movie and I'm so glad you brought this up because that is an incredible topic that I think more of us should be talking about more often. 100%. And yes, that film is fantastic. I mean, anyone listening, go watch All Cheerleaders, All Cheerleaders Die because it is a great example of queer horror. And as you said, it has that brilliant nuanced commentary on violence and how homophobia and misogyny are so intertwined that a lot of the times you can't separate them you know you can't really kind of say oh that violence that was you know that was homophobic well but it wasn't misogynistic like they are almost two sides of the same coin and yes i think it is a conversation that more people need to have because again it links into how everything is interconnected and you know intersectionality though I kind of like feel like intersectionality as like an academic term has now kind of been diluted given that you know the creator of the term has turned out to be a little bit of a transphobe so it's kind of like hmm I don't know if we I think we need to create a new term that isn't linked with a slightly problematic person (laughs) but that's a whole other topic Um, (laughs) one step at a time we got exactly we're we're (laughs) focusing on queerness and horror today (laughs) and we'll Um, yep go ahead uh, but another portion of the misogyny and homophobia point that I want to touch on and make sure that, you know, I, I just speak it out because I would throw up if I didn't. But <laughs> um, I have, you know, been obsessed with this notion that all sexuality is, from the man's point of view, centered around men. So mm-hmm. if you're, if you're a, a bisexual man, you are just gay. If you're a bisexual woman, you're just doing it for the attention of men. So it's, all of this is with the notion that cishet men are the center of the universe. And this just, isn't that the definition of uh, misogyny? So how, oh, how can you possibly sit there and say that the two aren't the same? Um, Because once again, just like violence, just like colonialism, it all comes back to uh, white cishet men. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah. White, white supremacy has ruined the world. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but also as well, I think I love that you kind of because that's another thing that I always think about and think more people should realize is how 
you know, that's where kind of biophobia comes from, that intricate link of homophobia and misogyny. That is essentially creates biophobia. And I love that you brought that up as well. And I think it's something that I always kind of like notice. And I think you kind of as well, like particularly within horror films, there's like a particular type of like horror fan that falls under this type of umbrella as well. But it's like so much of masculinity is oddly homoerotic in the sense that, you know, so much like the way men date and the way they, you know, practice courtship is about impressing other men. It's not actually about the target of their desire, which is usually women. It's actually about performing and appearing a certain way for the appeasement of other men. And I just think it is so, so like kind of oddly like homoerotic. And I do think there is a type of like horror film fan that again is probably usually a cishet white man, but it's this type of like, you know, bro horror and wanting to, you know, the type of horror films that they enjoy have to be a certain type of film so that their other horror bros will be their horror bros. And I just want to know what you kind of think about that type of, you know, type of kind of heightened masculinity almost. That horror as a genre, a lot of the times does exemplify and highlight. Well, I mean, I think if we continue to spend all of our money on, you know, people like Zabrambi, maybe, or <laughs> Leli Yoth, um, <laughs> you know, it, these men who perpetuate that homoeroticism, that performance for other dudes to impress mm. them, um, it's so see-through and shallow and I think if we're you know going to continue to fund those kind of movies we're just going to continue to perpetuate this idea that horror is for gross dudes you know Mm. and I think that is an underlying grime for lack of a better term that I uh, you know, a lot of horror fans, especially those of us who are queer and not gross dudes, um, carry with us, you know, mm. uh, because it's only recently uh, that horror has, you know, turned that leaf to reveal this richer, more inclusive, mm. more beautiful community or, you know, audience that has so much more to offer to it than what you know, the Michael Bay's of horror have been giving us. <laughs> I love that, the Michael Bay's of horror. That is fantastic. <laughs> that, 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 like, you know, that, is, that is a quote of the show and that is brilliant. <laughs> um, but yes, and like, like you're kind of saying there, there is that like almost like griminess associated with it. And it's really frustrating because it means that you almost like, if you are a you know, queer person or particularly like, you know, a woman or a femme, and you enjoy gross horror, there's that weird association that it's a negative thing because of the type of horror fan it's usually associated with. And like, that's so frustrating because like, you know, we should be able to 
enjoy you know the gross type of horror the horror that's you know squelchy and wet and just kind of disturbing in that type of way without having that negative association of oh it's only this type of person that likes that type of film and it's just like no there's so much more that can be done with these films but it's only there's like a very small sandbox that they're currently being made in and it's just like no we need to like break down those barriers and just (laughs) go all over the playground (laughs) not just in the one small sandbox (laughs) sand for everyone (laughs) yeah so yeah Yeah, sand in certain places maybe not i don't know maybe we'll go with a different metaphor at some point maybe (laughs) something much better than that lube lube everybody should be using lube yes (laughs) Lube for everyone. Exactly. I think that that is the mantra that's going on my hoodies now. Yes. <laughs> that's brilliant. But um, I think we're coming up almost on the hour mark now. So it's kind of like wind down and bring us to a close. I want to know what you kind of think is what what do you hope for the future? of queer horror because it does like you said we're turning a leaf it feels like we are moving in a more interesting direction because we're getting more queer creators behind the lens and on screen so I want to know what your hopes are like what type of queer horror do you want to see so to that end coming off of the grimy gore I really really want to see grosser horror movies being made by queer people um I think we're well on our way. I I love movies um, like Death Drop Gorgeous, beautiful mm, effects, yes. oh, great yes. story, so much fucking fun to watch. Um, things like that where it's not pretty, you know. Mm-hmm. I I think queer horror is really showing its colors and and getting gritty. And I just want to see it pushed to the hilt. I want pedal to the metal, nasty awful shit on screen oh oh my gosh i just watched titan um like a couple weeks ago for the first time i saw that in cinema and like i saw that in the cinema when it came out and like i haven't seen it since because like i kind of like want to wait for it to be on like a good format but um it was that like it still sits with me like that film was like the the way it like just comment the commentary on gender identity and appearance and everything and bodies and but also it was just gross it was like really gross there was just lots of grossness to it and yeah that was a such a really strong film and I love those type of films that you like because I saw that months ago when it was in the cinema and it still just pops into my head where I'm just like oh <laughs> it just kind of makes me go oh I remember that bit oh. <laughs> and I love those type of horror yeah. films <laughs> that's what I want more of I want to just get random shivers <laughs> from a nasty horror movie I saw by a fantastic queer creator mm-hmm. like I also don't want I mean I'll always seek it out but I don't want to have to sift through you know, movie upon movie to be like, oh, is this creator queer? I want it Mm -hmm. to be so widespread that there is an 80-20 chance I'm seeing a queer creator today. Um, I realize that's a lot of, you know, just me curating the proper stuff, but I am sick of looking through Netflix or looking through Hulu and not being able to find, you know, these beautiful stories that are being told 
beyond, you know, Shudder. Um, yes. And I just, I feel like wherever the platform is available, just throw it right up there. Just you're helping so many people with one movie. Just just pop it right up there. Exactly. And as well, I, I kind of very much second your, you know, call for more kind of gross, nasty kind of queer horror that pushes it to the hilt. Because so far, the queer representation we get, like, even kind of just outside of horror, but is so much of that sanitized, usually only, you know, gay men, like, type of stories that is just, and it's just like, yes, those stories can be fine, they're nice, but, like, you know, I want to see those kind of, like, you know, messy, fucked up stories that are just so blatantly queer, you can't question it. Because I think something that queer audiences so much relate to as you're saying is so much of our movie watching experience is trying to find queerness in what we're watching and all a lot of the time reading queerness when it might not necessarily explicitly be there and I'm just like I want it to change from that to be so explicitly queer that it's just you know it's an onslaught on our eyeballs and it's just fantastic that's what I'm wanting you know I want to be on you know I want to be attacked beautifully with queerness (laughs) yes I'm putting that on a t-shirt I want to be attacked beautifully with queerness thank you very much (laughs) and I think I've also noticed uh, you know that there's there is that divide it is either this sanitized squeaky clean queer Mm. representation or it is titan and I can't eat for you know a couple hours after which is fantastic but I, I would love to see a more a a range, a yes. spectrum of that representation because you either get family pride night at, at, you know, the local taqueria or you get, you know, kink night at your local underground rave, and, which, you know, both are fun, both are fine, but let's, let's just spread around the goodness. Exactly. You know, sprinkle a little bit of kink into our sanitized area. So, uh, you know, kink isn't just this hardcore thing. Kink is for everyone that wants it. You know, kink is beautiful. So, you know, sprinkle it into a little bit, you know, have that spectrum. Yes, that's, and I think that links back to the type, like what we were going to saying at the outset of this episode, you know, the queer horror we want to see is that spectrum of representation. We don't just want assholes. We don't just want angels. We want everything in between. And it's all beautiful. And I think that rounds us up to a perfectly good kind of finishing point of where to close out this episode. So just before I go, where can the listeners find you and your work and your podcast? So all of that you can find on Twitter at Black, And all of my junk is right there on my profile. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me, Blaine. And listeners, keep your ears out for more in my bonus Pride series on queer heart.